Hello, everyone. It's Daisha. If you've been listening to the Classical Classroom for a little while, you may remember when we traveled to the Music Academy of the West for their summer festival way back in aught 16. Well, their 2019 festival is happening right now, so we thought that this would be a good time to revisit one of those episodes. And today, you're going to be hearing from composer and pianist and conductor Matthew Acoin. Uh He talks about residency, what it is, and why it's important to classical music, because he was literally doing a residency at the time at the Music Academy of the West. Since we last talked, Matt has become a MacArthur Fellow, he's now artist-in-residence at the Los Angeles Opera, and he's co-artistic director of the American Modern Opera Company. (laughs) We're so proud. I hope you learn a little bit of something from this episode, and when you do, make sure to subscribe to, rate, and review the show. It takes only a second to change a podcast's life. And now on with the episode. Summertime and delivering is It's summer. Time to travel to a beautiful location relax and enjoy some music. Which apparently is what all of the classical musicians do, because we can't find any to do classical classroom episodes in town. So, we headed to the hills. And lo, we discovered there are these magical musical oases, oasises, whatever, called classical music festivals. Every summer, Students, performers, and orchestras spend their supposed time off making yet more music. Each year, a classical classroom is going to highlight a different festival. This year, we traveled to sunny Santa Barbara, California to the Music Academy of the West. So chill out, hang tin, insert other surfer phrases, and enjoy this classical classroom summer music festival series. Hey listeners, welcome to the third installment of our Summer Music Festival series. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with composer, conductor, and pianist Matthew O'Coin. It's true that part of the reason that we're doing this series on summer classical music festivals is, as we say in the intro of the show, that we're following the talent. But the other reason we're doing it is to find out why these things are so important to classical musicians. And I think we're getting closer to figuring it out. So let's have a little recap of what we've learned from our Music Academy of the West Spirit Guides. We've learned, as Music Academy of the West President and CEO Scott Reed says, that fellows go to the festival to practice performing. Fellow is, by the way, just what they call the students that go to the festival because they're all there on fellowships. The idea is that in between school years, uh, our fellows can join us and can focus uh, exclusively on music making, technique, and uh, performance, performing in front of a live audience, which is something that uh, we do quite extensively at the Music Academy. Matthew Sinnoh, who's a viola fellow at the festival, says that in addition to learning how to be better performers, people go to these festivals for professional development, to make connections with others in their industry. Just playing an orchestra, isn't, it isn't enough to keep you challenged and motivated and really keep you passionate about music. So these are the years you have to be going to festivals like Music Academy of the West where you're meeting new people, making colleagues, making friends, and just finding who you like to play with. And that way, when you're sitting in an orchestra and 10 years from now, maybe sitting in the section of San Diego Symphony, you'll, you'll be able to take weeks off. You know, you'll go to Seattle one week and you'll play a chamber music concert with your friends or 
Maybe you're playing a concerto somewhere else, or maybe your friend started a music festival. So these are the people we're going to be surrounded with for the rest of our lives. And as faculty clarinet Richie Hawley says, musicians go to these festivals to learn. They attend these master classes, basically one-on-one learning in front of other people. A musician gets on stage with an expert musician, and the expert teaches him or her how to do things better. And at the Music Academy of the West, in addition to drawing tons of students, these master classes draw tons of audience members from the community. Sounds incredibly nerve-wracking, right? In a master class, it's uh, the traditional sense where you have a master teacher and working with a student on a stage and uh, then with uh, an audience uh, that's participating and watching this event. And that's what's so spectacular about a festival like the Music Academy of the West, where it's really part of the community and the community is part of the festival in how the audience participates in the education of all of these fellows. In this interview with Matthew O'Coin, we talk about a smaller fourth reason for attending summer music festivals, doing a residency. And even though I've talked about residencies on this show before, I realized that I actually had no idea what the term meant with regard to classical musicians. Big surprise, since I know so much about this stuff. Matthew explains what residents like him do at summer music festivals, and he introduces us to some of the very cool new music that he's been working on. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Classical Classroom. I'm Daisha Clay, and here with me today is Matthew O'Coin. He's a composer, conductor, writer, and pianist. Uh, coming up this fall, he's going to be artist-in-residence at the Los Angeles Opera, a position created just for him. In addition to his new commissioned works that will be premiering this coming season, he's recently made his conducting debut at the Music Academy of the West. His work has been performed by the likes of Yo-Yo Ma, and he's currently composer-in-residence at the Peabody Essex Museum. Matthew O'Coin, welcome to the Classical Classroom. It's great to be here. So let's get right to it. So tell us what you've been doing at the Music Academy of the West this summer. Well, I'm a, <laughs> I'm a bit of a rare breed in that I, I really like composing and performing and treating it all as one activity. And, and what's really great about my work at the Music Academy this summer is that they've been willing to embrace this uh, goulash of musical things that, that I like to do. So we started the summer by performing my chamber opera, Second Nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I'm conducting a much older piece, um, Smetana's opera, The Bartered Bride. Mm-hmm. And alongside that, you know, coaching the singers and, and working with also the, the instrumental fellows about different styles of music and, and, and diction and, and musical issues and it's a it's a real treat for me. So uh, so before we get into the music, which I'd like to do, actually, we, we were lucky enough to get a copy of your second nature so we can listen to it while we talk. Um, but uh, so I hear this term residency thrown around a lot. And I, I always assume that it just means um, you're living there, essentially. And <laughs> I don't I don't really know what that means. So you've been you've been doing a residency at the Music Academy of the West. What what are the responsibilities of a person who's doing a residency? Well, it's it's quite a general term. It it, it really does just mean that I'm here. <laughs> but I think <laughs> okay. that it it allows for a, a deeper kind of connection to the fellows who are who are quite accomplished, but they're still students. Uh-huh. And I think that if you're going to make a difference in in the way someone sings or or plays or thinks about music or approaches mm-hmm. a particular kind of music, you can't just 
barge in one day and say, well, this is how I do it. You should do it that way too. (laughs) You need to get to know, you know, not just their voice, but their spirit and their mind and the way that their body works because, you know, singing especially is is a really physical thing. Your instrument is inside of your body. Right. And so it's, 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 it's quite, it's quite personal. And it, 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 I think it would be wrong, especially working with young singers, to do anything but a residency hmm. if you if you want to actually get to know them. Wow, that's so cool. So so a residency essentially gives you the ability to really be with the people who are in that organization or in that company or wherever it is that you're working. Sure. And how does it how does it sort of figure into your broader career? Like, what does a residency do? for your career that say, I don't know, just sort of being out in the world, being a composer, a conductor, working with various operas and symphonies, how is it different? Well, you know, composing is a lonely business, (laughs) but there's there's no, there's no way around it. It's you and uh, it's you and the empty page Mm -hmm. or empty screen. If you, if you prefer it that way, the kinds of work I'm doing now are, are, are great because it does put a human face on a later stage in the process that is the the performance of the music mm-hmm. it's, it's possible as a composer uh, for that not to feel so personal for, yeah. for it to be okay I do my job I sit alone in my uh, in my desk which you know presumably is a, on the top of an icy mountain somewhere in, you know, in Siberia <laughs> right. and then I send the music off to, and and uh, show up the week of the performance and, and that's that these these kinds of residencies, you're right to notice the pattern. They are sort of defining my next couple of years. They allow me to engage with the people who will be playing my music and with whom I will be performing it uh, at a much see. deeper okay. level. Yeah. And, you know, I would make a distinction between these kinds of positions and the kind of job of, say, uh, you know, a music director or principal conductor of an mm-hmm. organization. Because if, in some cases, if, if, if one were to do that, there would be no time left for composing. <laughs> yeah. uh, so these residencies strike a, a middle ground that makes me very happy. I see. Wow. So it's a really, really unique opportunity. I'm interested, too. You kind of touched on, you know, you're working with people and getting to learn who the performers who are performing your music are. And you're coaching them, I'm, I'm assuming. And you, mm-hmm. But you yourself are a very young person in your field. You're, you're 26 is that correct that's correct yeah. so so and and a lot of the people at the festival are there in their early 20s what's it like mm-hmm. to sort of be the authority figure amongst people who who aren't that much younger than than you like what's what's that dynamic like it's a good question <laughs> I, I tend to feel that the age issue evaporates as soon as you start making music with someone yeah Sure, the reality is that I'm on the faculty side and, and a lot of the fellows are on the, you know, all the fellows are on, on, the, on the student side. But in the moment of performing a piece, mm-hmm. those distinctions have to evaporate. I mean, yeah. I would be a terrible colleague if I were being, you know, pedantic or <laughs> right. you yeah. know, intrusive in the moment of music making. So it's only a problem at the sort of social level and not at the level of the actual music because, you know, that, that always transcends those kinds of questions. Yeah. But, you know, in a coaching or a kind of masterclass situation, <laughs> how to put it, young singers aren't stupid. They can smell BS a mile away, <laughs> whether it's coming from someone who's 26 or 76. Right. So I, I really just have to do my best to offer substantial, real, 
honest feedback and uh, yeah. and see what happens. So you just you just work at being your genuine self and 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 hope for the best. And that's that's an interesting observation that when you're actually doing the music, which is the whole point of all of this, it kind of it evaporates. I mean, my job yeah. is in a in a weird way to make myself invisible. Um, to just yeah. to, to 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 inhabit the music so completely that no one is thinking about who the messenger is. Right. If I somehow were making it about me, mm-hmm. then people would start saying, "Hey, you know, whippersnapper, whatever." <laughs> but you know, I hope that if we're all just making music, we're not thinking about the rest of our lives. Right. How old someone is doesn't really play into making good music. it's hard knowing what to do with money sometimes it seems like other people have it all figured out and that somehow you didn't get the memo there's so many questions and so few answers how do you know what's right honestly i have no idea what is money but small green pieces of paper that purchase happiness but i can suggest one idea for what to do with your surplus dollars give a gift to the classical classroom A one-time or recurring gift of any amount you like can be gifted to us at classicalclassroomshow.com. Just look for the tip jar button. And since you're on our website and admiring it, I should tell you that our friends at New Y made it. They can make one for you too, and they can promote your business. Find out more at classicalclassroomshow.com slash NW. That's N as in new and W as in Y. And now back to my chat with Matthew Acoin. Well, speaking of music... We're about to hear some of your opera, Second Nature, but um, before that, can you sort of set it up for us a little bit and tell me a little bit about the opera? So Second Nature is a, uh, it's a dystopian fairy tale, which is set about 100 years in the future. It was, it, it was commissioned, it's, it's by far the most specific commission I've ever written, <laughs> commissioned by the Lyric Opera of Chicago as a, a small-scale chamber opera for uh, five or six singers and three uh, instrumentalists, and it had to be under an hour long, and the premiere was to take place in the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago. (laughs) Wow. And when they approached me about writing the the piece, um, Anthony Freud, the the general director at at Lyric, said, you know, it doesn't have to involve wildlife, but if if you're inspired (laughs) by the fact that it's going to first be heard in a zoo, you know, run with it. Yeah. So I, I visited the zoo, and um, you know zoos are they're fascinating places. They're they're sanctuaries and prisons at once. Right. And they're both very hopeful places and very sad places because everywhere you go, you're hearing that the the creatures in front of you are endangered mostly because of what we are doing. Mm-hmm. So w- wandering around this this very beautiful zoo, I. Uh, my mind turned to what we're doing to the planet and, and all, all of that. So the piece is kind of a reverse Garden of Eden story yeah. set about 100 years in the future, in a future in which we've really screwed things up or, you know, <laughs> continued to screw continued things up. what we're doing currently. Yeah. And uh, the few remaining humans who've survived have kind of, well, they've been fleeing hurricanes and sandstorms and, and everything, and they've taken refuge in what was once a zoo. They've basically said, let us in, and built a, built walls around themselves and uh, hope for the best. There was once an age when people 
love you. They used to call a place like this a zoo. A zoo, yes, full of wild things like me. Which all your kind would come and see. You played with nature, then nature played rough. Suddenly, and suddenly, mankind didn't seem so tough. The rising tide of winters and harvest for the farmers. I must admit, it felt like karma. And it's about two kids. The opera is about two kids who were born into this world. Um, having been fed all kinds of lies about why this is actually desirable, <laughs> why this is actually the only way to live. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the uh, the ape who lives next door, there's still an ape from the from back when it was a zoo, mm-hmm. uh, starts talking to them. Uh, he's been secretly growing a, a real tree, which is illegal. Um, and the tree has been yielding fruit. And he offers the kids, who are a boy and a girl, offers them fruit. And uh, they eat it. And it makes them realize that they have to get out of this place and see what yeah. there is out there in the world. So this is what dissect the frog of the story too much but you know in the garden of eden you want to be in the garden and the world outside is the punishment but in in this in this case uh eating the fruit makes you realize you have to leave the garden and maybe going out into the world is what you need to do if you're going to save it so it's a it's a weird mixture of a parable and you know sci-fi and um all told with my uh you know somewhat spiky sometimes sometimes more lyrical sometimes uh, uh, slightly edgier musical language
so it, it, it was interesting doing it at Music Academy for an audience. To, for, we did it twice. Once for an audience of about 400 kids from a nearby summer camp. And then we did it for an audience of adults. And I was totally nervous about doing it for all grown-ups because it, it wasn't really written for that kind of evening, you know, everybody's dressed up mm-hmm. concert setting. <laughs> but it, uh, I don't know, uh, the grown-ups may have liked it more. I'm not sure if that is a success or failure on my part. <laughs> so did, did you also write the libretto? I did, yeah. That's really awesome. Thanks. So uh, can you tell me just briefly what is unique about participating in the Music Academy of the West Summer Festival as opposed to any other? The Music Academy, of course, has a really strong history for singers, you know, from from Lottie Lehman through Marilyn Horn, mm-hmm. uh, th- through whose interest I, I got involved here at the Music Academy. But I think in, in recent years, the, the instrumental program has flourished in an astonishing way so that really it, it's, it's, it's firing on all cylinders at the moment. Um, I think the thing that sets it apart is the, the master class, mm. um, which is a, a common enough concept now yeah. in the classical music world. You know, the master class being like a public lesson yeah. where uh, a student plays something and a, a master teacher offers pearls of wisdom, hopefully in a way that is both useful to the student and interesting to an audience, mm-hmm. you know, an audience of not just musicians. This has become very common, but what I didn't know until I came out here is that really the master class has its origins at this festival. Really? Wow. It's always been a really integral part. Long before the master class was the norm in the classical music world, it was an integral part of the way music gets oh. taught here. And what I've been amazed about, you know, master classes Look, th- there's always the risk that it's going to be boring because yeah. if you listen, you know, if you're not a pianist and you listen to a piano teacher talking about, you know, fingerings mm-hmm. <laughs> for for a particular piece, it might not be all that compelling. So w- when I think of a master class, I think of a a hall that's almost totally empty and a, a teacher maybe mumbling and not being heard because the mic isn't working right, whatever. Uh-huh. Here, <laughs> The master classes that I've attended have all been 100% sold out. Wow. And the audience here hangs on every word. Admittedly, the, the teachers here are really good at talking simultaneously to the student and to the audience mm-hmm. because that's the culture of the place. Yeah. But what's really special is that the culture of the place extends to the audience. Yeah. And you have hundreds and thousands, really, of, of, of people who come back day after day, week after week. So that, for me, was was really illuminating because I always find the teaching process to be every bit as exciting as watching a performance. Yeah. But I didn't necessarily think anybody else felt that way. <laughs> so it's good to find an audience that does. That's very cool. And, and my final question to you is, what do you do for fun while you're there in this gorgeous place? Oh, man. Well, uh, I'm a big runner and hiker. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the moment, I'm still based in New York, but one of the major selling points, both of of the Santa Barbara area and the uh, the LA area, is just the unbelievable quality of the of the hiking <laughs> and the uh, the ease of of just you know slipping out your front door and walking yeah. up a mountain. Um, so I've been I've been really enjoying that escaping uh, escaping the campus every so often. 
Awesome. Well, Matthew O'Coin, thank you so much for taking the time to come and chat with us in the Classical Classroom today. I know you've got a crazy busy schedule, particularly today, so I really appreciate your time. Totally my pleasure, Desha. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, that does it for this episode. For more Classroom, go to classicalclassroomshow.com. Listen to things, follow our social media links, play global thermonuclear warfare. Okay, I'm just kidding about that last one. Send us an email at classicalclassroomshow at gmail.com. Thanks to the home of Classical Classroom, King FM, where we finally organized the junk drawer, which contained mostly old candy, it turns out. Thanks to the birthplace of Classroom, Houston Public Media. Thanks to Matthew Ockoin for being on the show way back in the day. Thanks to the official horse-drawn carriage company of Classroom, Harry's Horses. We are most definitely horsing around. Thanks to me for saying words, but most of all, thanks to you for listening. We'll catch you next time.